Well, if you have a Bible, either a printed copy or a digital copy on your phone, let me encourage you to hold it up right now and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth. For what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and then we're going to get into chapter 3. There was a professor at a certain law school who every year, as he opened up his class, would put two numbers on the board. He would put a 4 and a 2. And then he would ask the question, what? is the answer. And immediately someone would shout out six, another person would shout out eight, someone would shout out two. And every time they would give an answer, he would shake his head no. And then he said this, he said, the reason you can't find the right answer is because you don't know the problem. The reason you can't find the right answer is because you don't know the problem. Unless you know what the problem is, you will most likely never find the right answer. Now, when we look at our society, I think that we see all kind of issues, all kind of problems, all kinds of things that need to be fixed. And the problem is our our politicians and our leaders, they do all kinds of things to try to fix these problems. But the problem is they have asked the wrong question, so they're never going to get the right answer And the reason for all the problems is because of the shape of the family in our society today. I think you would all agree with me, or at least most of you would agree with me this morning, that our families are in serious problems today. The traditional family, a family which consists of a a husband and a wife and one or more biological or, or adopted children, is now in the minority. Less men and women are marrying today than ever before. They are choosing rather to live together without the the obligation or the commitment of marriage. And more and more kids today are being raised in a single parent family or they're being shipped back and forth between families forced to adapt to a new environment each and every week. Over the last 10 years, we've we've redefined what marriage is in America. And now we can't define what a man and a woman is. Our society is not only promoting gay marriage, we are promoting gender reidentification of adolescent boys and girls. The state of Washington this past week passed a law that a minor child could have gender reassignment treatment without their parents' permission. Think about that. A minor child could have gender reidentification treatment without their parents' knowledge or consent. The family is far from what God intended when he established it as the foundational structure of society. And understand, the family is the foundational structure of society. As the family goes, society goes. And that's why our society 
is in such deep trouble today because our families are in deep trouble. But the question we need to ask is how in the world did we get here? The Bible tells us that God created man and he placed him in this beautiful garden paradise. He created man in his own likeness, in his own image, and he gave man the responsibility of tending, caring for God's creation. God gave that first man, Adam, one command. He said that you can eat from any tree in the garden except one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and if you eat that tree, of that tree, you will die. And so Adam got busy tending God's creation, taking care of what God had left him to take care of. But in the midst of this perfect creation, something was missing. The Bible tells us that, that man was alone. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I want you to listen very carefully. God created us for relationship. Whether we are married or single, God created us for relationship. And when we begin to live our life in isolation, that's when we are in danger of the attacks of the enemy. Isolation is a dangerous place to be. And so God created woman for man, from man to be with man. God created Eve to be Adam's perfect helper, his completer, his companion. To walk side by side with him, arm in arm with him throughout his life. And when God performed that first wedding of Adam and Eve, he gave them words that were foundational for every man and woman who would be married after that. God said to them, a man is to leave his mother and father. He's to be united to his wife and the two will become one. God was telling them that when we marry, our spouse becomes our number one priority apart from God. He was telling them that when we marry, we are forging a lifetime commitment that is never intended to be broken. And he was telling them that when we marry, we're no longer two independent people. Rather, we are becoming one in every way of life. And that was God's word for the first man and the first woman. And when God set that up, he said it was very good. It was great. That's what Genesis 2 verse 25 describes. Listen to what it says. It says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That was God's plan for marriage. That was God's plan for his creation. Now I know some of you men, probably most of you men, are liking that verse right now, aren't you? The man and the woman were both naked and there was no shame. The thought of being in a garden paradise, a tropical oasis, alone and naked with the woman of your dreams, well, that's paradise. And the truth is, Adam and Eve were physically naked. But I don't believe that's the point of this verse. It's not saying that, that paradise involves walking around naked all day. What it's doing is it's telling us that before the flood, man and woman were completely exposed. Nothing was hidden. Nothing was covered up. 
Everything was in the open, and yet there was no shame. You see, God intended marriage to be a place of nakedness without shame. Now, the word naked, it implies being exposed. It implies that, that nothing was hidden, nothing was covered up. It expresses the idea that there were no secrets. Everything was revealed, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Adam and Eve were completely exposed before God and one another. With God, they wanted to know him and they wanted to be known by him. They longed to be in his presence and walk with him every moment of every day. They saw him as a loving, trustworthy father who wanted only the best for them. And nothing was hidden from God. And with one another, there was complete honesty. There was total transparency in an environment of perfect love. Nothing was hidden from each other. I love this quote by Jimmy Evans in his book, Marriage on the Rock. This is what he said. He said, God intended marriage to be a place of total nakedness, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Let me say that again. God intended marriage to be a place of total nakedness, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And the result of that kind of nakedness is intimacy where you allow your spouse to see into you, not just see you, and where your spouse allows you to see into them, not just see them. You see, intimacy isn't the result of physical contact. Physical contact is the result of intimacy. Intimacy is when you expose your soul, your desires, everything about you to your spouse, and they do the same with you. That's what intimacy is. And that's what Adam and Eve originally had in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with God and a perfect relationship with one another. They were fully known and they fully knew. And the Bible says there was no shame. That's important. There was no shame. Now, understand shame. Shame is a terrible thing. The dictionary defines shame as a painful emotion. It's called by guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. It involves the loss of honor and the loss of respect. The Hebrew word that, that is translated shame here involves disgrace. Shame is almost always relational. When you're not accepted, when you feel rejected, you bring, you experience shame. It brings shame. Now, I want you to understand there's a big difference between guilt, especially godly guilt, and shame. Godly guilt motivates us to confess when we've done wrong, to repent. Godly guilt is about behavior. And godly guilt is a good thing. But shame is totally different. A Christian psychiatrist said it this way. He said, guilt activates our conscience and allows us to turn, to confess, to make amends for what we've done. But shame 
strikes at the core of who we are. Let me say that again. Shame strikes at the core of who we are. It's not really about what we've done. It's about our identity, who we are, that feeling that I am not enough. Let me say that again. Shame comes from that feeling that I am not enough. For a woman, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not sexy enough. I'm not valuable enough. For a man, it may be I don't have what it takes. I don't measure up. I'm not man enough. But there was none of that in the garden. There were none of those feelings of inadequacy or fear of being rejected or being cast aside. There was none of that. They were naked without any shame. This was life before sin entered the world. This was life the way God intended it to be. Now, I don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in verse 25. I don't know how long of a time they experienced that verse, nakedness without shame. But I do know when we get to the very next verse, everything changed. Our arch enemy, our adversary, Satan himself, entered the garden. Do you remember the story? Look at, look at verse 1. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, understand, a serpent is, is just a snake. And I hate snakes. I despise snakes. My thought is the only good snake is a dead snake. And I know, I know, get it? I, I know that there, you, you can sit back and say, there's good snakes. They eat rodents. They eat rats. They do this. Man, any snake in my yard is going to become a dead snake. And so if you like certain snakes, then keep them out of my yard. <laughs> because I cannot imagine a garden paradise where there were snakes. But there were snakes in Eden. There were snakes in this garden paradise. And evidently, these snakes were, were not like the snakes we have today because the snake was cursed. Evidently, these snakes were graceful, beautiful creatures. And evidently, this particular snake was quite the communicator. But I want you to remember that this was no ordinary snake because we're told that, that Satan had inhabited this snake, this serpent. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now you may wonder, why did God allow Satan into the garden? Why did God allow Satan into paradise? Well, I'm not sure. But from my perspective, I, I think it was to give man a choice. Was man going to trust his loving heavenly father or was he going to trust someone or anyone else? You see, you need to understand in any relationship, there has to be choice for there to be a relationship. If I don't have a choice to love my wife, then I cannot really love her. If I don't have a choice to love God, then I cannot really love him. I'm just programmed to love. 
You see, for there to be a relationship, there must be a choice. And so God gave Adam and Eve a choice. And notice immediately, Satan began to doubt God's word. Listen to what it says in the rest of verse 1. One day, he, Satan, asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? No. Satan was a master spin doctor. He still is. The Bible says that Satan is the father of all lies. Satan takes lies and he makes them look so beautiful. He makes them look true. And so Satan came and he planted a doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say? I want to tell you plainly, that anyone who causes you to doubt or question God's word is not good. You need to stay away from them. Someone once said that Eve put a question mark where God had put a period. And you never do that. But not only did, did Satan doubt God's word, Satan distorted God's word. Did you notice that? Satan said, did, did God say you can't eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Well, God didn't say that. God said you can't eat from one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But, but Satan caused her to question God's word. I want you to understand something. Unless we are grounded in God's word, we will become confused about God's commands. Unless we are grounded in God's word, we will become confused about God's commands. Listen to what it says in verses 2 and 3. It says, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Don't you notice what Eve did? She took what God had said, you cannot eat it or you will die, and she added to it. When Satan distorted God's word, Eve became confused about God's word. Now, I want to warn you, there are a lot of people out there today who distort God's word in many different ways, and you need to be careful. Some add to the word of God. They, they make what God commands us to do harder than what God makes it. They tell us that we can't do things that God hasn't told us we can't do. There are other people that tell us that we can do things that God has clearly told us we can't do. And so you need to be careful because there are people out there who are going to distort God's word and they're going to use it as tools of Satan to cause you to fall from where God wants you to be. But the next thing we see is Satan outright denied God's word. Look at verses 4 and 5. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. You won't die. You'll be like God. You can be your own God. You can determine truth. You can decide for yourself what is right and wrong. You can determine what's good and evil. And Eve Eve believed the lie. Look at verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. The one thing, the one thing that God told them not 
to do, they did. And it changed everything. Everything. And that's when the great cover-up began. The cover-up that has continued to this day. Notice what it says in verse 7 and following. It says, at that moment their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame. Now, let's stop there for just a minute. Chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and they weren't ashamed. And now, they disobeyed God, their eyes were open, and they felt shame because of their nakedness. They went from no shame to a life of shame. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, or where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten some of the eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. The moment they ate the fruit, everything changed. Shame began to dictate everything they did. And I want you to hear me. Shame now dictates everything we do. Because of their sin, we see ourselves and other people differently. Notice what it says, their eyes were open. They saw themselves in a different way, not a good way. You see, sin always causes us to look at people differently. We tend to see people as resources we can use to meet our need rather than people to have relationships with. We notice every flaw, every failure, every mistake that people make. And yet, we're somehow oblivious to our own. We see people as the cause to all of our problems, all of our pain, all of our hurt. So they saw themselves and others differently. And rather than expose themselves and being transparent, they covered up and kept things to themselves. You see, our sin causes us to be afraid to open up. We begin to be afraid of exposing ourselves. We're always asking, what if? What if they can't be trusted? What if, what if I share something or I say something or I do something and, and later they use that against me? And so instead of living that life of transparency that God created us to live, we cover up and we hold things out of fear. And then we try to hide from God rather than running to God. We've all done that. We have this crazy idea that, that God may not find out what we've done, but isn't that silly? Isn't that foolish? I mean, if God is the creator of everything, if, if God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, then God sees everything you do, everything you've ever done. Nothing is hidden from God. But we try to hide cover up and finally we blame one another instead of acknowledging that that we may have done wrong that we may have been at fault that we may have messed up we try and blame each other and we become defensive we point out every fault that our spouse has we say things like well you did 
or if only you would have. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves at a place that is light years away from where we thought we would be in our marriage. And understand, that's what sin does. And each and every one of us have been born under that dark cloud of sin. And that sin that that came into the world because of Adam and Eve, it affects us physically, it affects us emotionally, it affects us mentally, it affects us psychologically, it affects us relationally, it affects us spiritually, it affects us in every single way. And though the extent of that curse, the cloud of sin, is seen in those areas in our lives differently, it is there. You see, the the Bible says that because of that sin, we all are infected from the top of our head to the tip of our toes. Everything about us is infected with sin. Some of us sit back and say, I don't understand how how someone could, could have these homosexual tendencies. Well, because of the dark cloud of sin. And, and that dark cloud of sin in their life is no different than the dark cloud of sin in your life that may cause you to have an affair with someone of the other sex. Or, or may cause you to, to go to your computer when you're by yourself and view porn. The reason you do those things is because of the dark cloud of sin in our life. The reason we talk harshly to one another or even abuse other people is because of the dark cloud of sin. And though though the way that dark cloud is manifested in your life may look different than the way it's manifested in my life, we all have that dark cloud And it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with the people that we love. That's what sin did to our relationships. Then I'm convinced that probably most of us in this room want the kind of intimacy that God created us to have in the garden. I know I do. I mean, I want that nakedness without shame. And I'm not talking about walking around without clothes. I'm talking about I long for that that intimacy. I long for a relationship where I can have the the, the freedom and the comfort of, of allowing my spouse to see into me and she allows me to see into her and we share everything and all of those things help us become one. So how? In a sin-filled world, can we reverse this great cover-up and become transparent with God and one one another again? Well, I believe there are three things that we have to do. And I believe if we do these three things, they will make a major difference in our relationships. First, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to face up to our faults, our feelings, our fears, our insecurities. We have to be honest with ourselves before we can ever become intimate with God or other people. Until I'm honest with myself about my faults, I'm never going to be in the place that I need to be in to have the kind of relationship I want to have with other people. So you have to admit your faults. By the way, that's the first step 
to salvation. I've got to admit I have a need that I can't solve and that need is, is sin and I can't solve that problem. I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. I live as a sinner. I struggle with sin and I can't seem to break free of sin on my own. I need help. That's the first step of salvation, admitting that we're a sinner and we need help. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Then we've got to be honest with God. I mean, God already knows where we're at anyway. He's just waiting for us to admit our struggles, our faults, our fears, so that he can help. You see, God is not going to intervene into your life until you ask him to. He's not going to force himself upon you. He will give you the freedom. He will allow you to live your life the way you want to. He will give you over to all those desires that you long for, those sinful desires. He won't force himself on you. God's not like that. So you've got to come clean with God. You've got to admit to God, God, I need help. And when you do, then God's going to come in and God's going to help you. So you admit your faults to yourself be honest with yourself. God, I am a sinner. And then you come clean with God. God, I need you. When it comes to salvation, what we're saying is, God, I, I need a Savior. I, I need Jesus to pay for my sins because the wages of sin is death. And, and I've sinned a bunch and I deserve death. So I need someone to pay the price for me. And that's what Jesus did. He came to this earth. He died on the cross to pay our sin debt. So that you and I could be forgiven. We're honest with ourselves. We're honest with God. and Then we're honest with our, our spouse. We quit hiding behind the leaves we've gathered to cover up the real you. If you want what you're looking for, you've got to risk being vulnerable. You're never going to have true intimacy until you become vulnerable. The greatest risk you'll ever take in your marriage, the risk of transparency, will potentially be the most rewarding thing you ever do. Now, here's the key. And it's found in what Jesus did. Now, this verse isn't on your note sheet, but I encourage you to write it down because you need to hold on to this verse. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Let our eyes be glued on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross he scorned its shame so that you and I could have our shame removed. Now, to understand, death on a cross was a shameful act. They would put them on that cross totally naked, unclothed, everything exposed. And they would hang on that cross completely naked until they died. People would come by, they would mock them, make fun of them, 
shout obscenities at them. You know how human nature is. You know what people do. They did that to Jesus. The Son of God, God in the flesh, the creator of everything, they did that to him. He could have come off that cross, but he didn't. He endured the cross. And he scorned the shame. You know what that means? He despised it. He didn't let that shame take control of him, but he took it on so that you and I could be released from shame. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, listen to me. Shame does not have to define your marriage anymore. You can be naked, completely open, exposed, transparent, intimate with your spouse without shame. But the only way, the only way is Jesus. It's the only way. Because without Jesus, there's going to be shame. It's going to be. It's just the way it is. And so if you want the kind of marriage that God intended for us, nakedness without shame, then the first step is giving it all to Jesus. So have you done that? If you haven't, that's what you need to do today. Not just for your eternal destiny, but for your marriage, for your children, for yourself, for, for everything. It will change everything. I want you to bow your head with me and close your eyes with me. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to ask you, have you given your life to Jesus? I believe with all my heart, there's some people in here today, men, women, you really do want your marriage to be everything that you intended for it to be. You want that. But if you're honest right now and you would acknowledge that the reason it's not is because you haven't surrendered everything to Jesus. And I want to invite you right now to humble yourself before God. Let him save you so that he can restore your marriage and make it what you want it to be and he wants it to be. If that's what you desire, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I humbly come to you today acknowledging I'm a sinner. I've lived life my way. I've chosen willfully to disobey you. I'm tired of it. I don't want to live that way anymore. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave so that I could be forgiven. Jesus, forgive me. I'm asking you to save me, make me brand new. Jesus, I'm turning from sin, and I'm giving my life to you today. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. Now look at me. 